0: Welcome to episode sixty-two of Probably Polly, the podcast where we question everything, even our name. As always, I am your host, Michael Hay,
1: and I'm your co-host, Mandy
0: Cohen. Today we have a guest dropping by to speak with us.
2: My name is Dr. Daniel Stillwell. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist. I've been a professor of family therapy, and I am a supervisor. So I work with all sorts of people, mainly relationship therapy. And I have found the LGBTQ community to be one. that has been effective to work in and I have found really enjoyment in working with the non-monogamy world, poly world, BDSM kink. It's also something that a lot of therapists either don't know about or don't want to know about and so I have Found a nice home there. Daniel
0: actually did drop by our probably poly chat the other day, but you didn't say anything. Watched, saw, and
2: listened. So, what did you think? I noticed that everyone was going back and forth, and I came in a little late, so I didn't quite hit the ground running. But people seemed to be asking questions, making good observations, putting in feedback from their own lives and different thoughts. And so, it seemed like the kind of thing that if somebody either has questions or thoughts, that it's a welcome place for that.
0: Awesome. That's great. I try and make the end product, not necessarily the process for the recording, planned out and intentional. For those, I try and just let people do whatever they want. And sometimes I feel like I haven't done enough planning and I'm like, I don't know what we're doing. But Mandy does generally actually have plans. I do seem to bulldoze the chat sometimes. The reason that we asked Daniel to be on the show today is because we had a very thoughtful comment on our episode on boundaries, wants and needs about how our take on that might actually muddy the water more they said and pointed out some of the classic or older structures about what those things might mean and then and I was talking about that a little bit the last time we were hanging out virtually hanging out by the way we're still doing social distancing Woo-hoo. and being responsible but hanging out to the extent that you hang out these days having a
1: 2020 hangout
0: and i realized that i had done something very specific with it but i hadn't pointed out that it was very specific so i was only talking about the way that i recommend using that language inside of a specific interpersonal relationship and even more specifically when people are writing up relationship contracts because that was the question that i got that a listener wrote me and said we're writing a relationship contract how do i know what's about need and want. And also that is the chapter in the book that I was writing when I got that question was about how to write out your boundaries, needs and wants. And so that was very much where my mind was at. But I didn't point out the fact that and this is what came up in the discussion that there are Lots of different types of boundaries, needs, and wants. Like we said, you can't need sexual access or a relationship because you can't force someone to give you those things. And therefore, that can't be a legitimate relationship need. But it can be a human need, Daniel pointed out to me. So that as a person who is a relational being, we actually do need relationships to be healthy. I
2: think the distinction between what kind of need and what kind of scale that you're talking about a need at is really useful to be aware of. For example, like you said, we have needs as humans. We have needs as humans in relationship. And those can be very similar, but they can sometimes be distinct enough that they matter to us. We can have needs for different styles of relationships. This is my parent. This is my child. This is my friend. This is my partner. This is my friends with benefit. Each one is going to have different versions of how a need looks like, or they'll have different needs entirely. The other thing that I do with my clients is try to differentiate relational needs with any of your partners versus relational needs with the one partner that we're talking about. Being able to differentiate the broader to the specific also helps them articulate a little bit better about what they're looking for or not from the person in front of them. And we did
0: touch on the idea that different classifications of needs would be different in our episodes. We did say your needs for a mother are going to be different than your needs for a friend or a very close friend versus a new friend or someone you recently met. But we... We said, or at least I said, that I think of a relationship needs as being something that are going to be true of the same category of relationships. So that's sort of at odds with your note about you can have unique needs for a specific person. I, I guess I want to hear more about what a relationship need that would be unique
2: to an individual would look like. In order to understand what I think I'm talking about, let me kind of give you my structure of how I understand sure. the relationship between needs and boundaries. So I'm going to use a metaphor here. The basic idea that there's some land and there's a house on that land. That is where you live, assuming a secure attachment, not secure attachments. We can be all over the place and we can, the metaphor can bend with that. But assuming a secure attachment, you've got a house on some land, the land immediately around the house, is what we would call a need this is where we most potently feel and create our sense of identity our sense of safety being functional if this is all there is you're still going to be okay you're still going to be able to find meaning and fulfillment in your life if other people visit or even if you find someone that can merge houses with you those needs have to be compatible in order to last around the land that we would call needs, is a first set of boundaries, and I'll describe that in a second. So you've got your first sort of lower fence. The land around that is what we call wants. So this is usually fluid for people. This is where you get enjoyment, pleasure, fun, ease, convenience, that type of idea. It still can be difficult to have people visit or live there, but it's a lot easier if they are coming and going or if they have differences than yours because it's in your more flexible zone of the land. And around that area of land, the wants area, is another set of boundaries, another fence. And this is generally what people really are trying to emphasize when they say boundaries. This is the perceived separation of good or bad, okay, not okay, comfortable, uncomfortable, dangerous, safe. And even in my work, a lot of times We have to pull those apart because they perceive something as dangerous when really it's just uncomfortable the land beyond the wants past that last set of boundaries is what i call the don't wants and this is typically where people believe there's excessive pain or difficulty or fear this can be traumatic experiences people that they believe are problematic and the farther away from the house The more invasive or foreign or scary or confusing the person, the idea, the whatever will seem to us. So I actually teach and think about boundaries as something different than needs, wants, don't wants. So those are the land. The boundaries are the fences that create structure and maintain stability across the land.
1: Oh, that's interesting.
2: I think about boundaries being thought about in three different aspects. Distance from something on the land, from the house in this case what kind of structure it is, and the permeability of that structure. So if you think about a wall that's made of glass, that's going to be a different kind of experience than a wall made of steel. Boundaries are very sensitive to crossing from the outside in toward the house because they signify when our wants or needs are being encroached upon. They are less sensitive going from the inside out because you start with a greater sense of autonomy, safety, agency, willpower, whatever. And I like to think of these as gates that generally open out, or those commercial doors that when you press on the door bar, it opens out, but it's often locked from the outside.
1: Yeah, that makes complete sense.
2: And so boundaries, it's confusing to say what boundaries are, because boundaries are in some ways the liminal space between one type of thing and another type of thing. Boundaries are arbitrary, they're drawn and then moved oftentimes. And so psychologically, we see boundaries as emotional markers of cognitive or psychological schema. This is my understanding of the world, and I'm drawing these lines along it. And when something crosses that line, I'm going to have a reaction. There's going to be an emotional response. Boundaries are contextual, they are created, they are negotiable, and they provide protection and empowerment. So inside the boundary, you are safe. To run around freely. Not only do you protect yourself from what's outside, but you give yourself a sense of structure. You, you have a self by having a boundary, if that makes sense. And so we can talk about boundary crossings as moments in which one person either has consent to cross or violates. And if we talk about it from that don't want area, basically somebody's bringing something that is scary or foreign or confusing into my area of safety, and I have a response. In a very similar way, people will sometimes ask us to go outside of our own comfort zone, our own boundaries, and we get to that line and we say, nah, I'm not doing it. I can't go visit that one person. I can't in COVID times. I can't come to your place right now. That's a boundary. For me,
0: Okay, so one of the issues that I ran into when I was attempting to answer this question about what kind of things I was aiming at is the issue of the definitional cloud, which is the concept that a word has many different uses, applications, and definitions. Mm-hmm. And a boundary is the liminal space between one thing and another. It makes entire sense to use it to mean between any moment between want and don't want, but In the community, as I've seen it used, as people use it, as people talk about it, it tends to be that boundaries almost just means super serious boundaries. In my experience, it has an extra legitimacy to it. So like if someone says, this makes me uncomfortable, or I'm not sure that I want to do this, people don't generally have a hard stop moment. But if someone says, this is a boundary for me, it usually is indicative that this is a hard stop moment that you
2: need to back away from. And that's a great point because the land of the want may not actually be very thick, so that the don't want and the need, there's essentially one boundary between those. And when the don't want rubs against the need, it's extra reactive. And those are the ones that we often say are those hard boundaries. Like, no, you do not get to... There's no flexibility. There's no buffer. That permeability is down. That's a hard stone wall. And...
0: I'm trying to draw it as we go, because if listeners haven't heard this before, I don't have a visual imagination. And so I'm sort of redrawing the concept as we move forward. And it's getting to be a a hilariously complex drawing, because originally I just had like a circle that was the house, and then another circle and another circle. But now I have different thicknesses of fence at different locations. And I also have the inner circle is not a circle, it's a splotch. And sometimes the splotch goes all the way past the wants to the don't wants, like no wants in between. And so it's an interestingly
2: complex graphic by comparison. Well, and as anybody who's who's listened to this show, can tell you theory is nice and clean, and then we go and apply it, and (laughs) it changes.
1: That's when it gets all messy.
2: So when I do this with clients, I'll actually draw it as a very simple thing, and then we will messy it up to make it real to them. That way, it's messy in a unique way to their particular structure. So you've got the different kinds of boundaries. Some are hard, some are soft, some are very flexible. I think about The net on a tennis court near the edges, they're got these posts that are stuck to. So there's not much play at all. But in the middle, there's a lot of wiggle room. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the way that we feel about a particular violation depends on who's doing it, depends on what time of day it is, depends on how hungry we are.
1: Where in the net it hits. Yeah,
2: exactly. And so you've got these different contextual points that change how we experience what that is. When I say contextual, I mean location, people, time, all of the things that kind of acknowledge the fact that any boundary is, I think you you pointed out in the episode, for you, for me. Right. The one thing that I add to that when I'm working with people is to say, I think my boundary is, I think my need is. Because when we say it as final, that creates new opportunities to have emotional reactions Because you're probably drawing a harder line than you actually need to.
1: But now I would push back to say that if you say you think that your boundary is that, that maybe you're not drawing a hard enough line for someone and it does leave room for them to push back and compromise yourself.
2: Absolutely. If you're not engaged in active communication, which is why all boundaries are negotiable. My boundaries are going to change depending on my sense of self and my sense of you.
1: That's Yeah, that's true. Yeah.
2: As we engage each other, we're going to develop a greater sense of safety. And if we find out that our fit is solid, then the merging of the lands actually happens a little bit. And so that's an interesting
0: question about, again, how you use language. Mm -hmm. My conception of boundaries wouldn't be that boundaries change in the way that you mean. I mean, they do change, but not... Maybe as often as that. So like when you said something like your boundary for me is going to change. So there's somebody that I'm seeing and I'm flirting and I'm interested in, but we haven't discussed if we can kiss or not. So then obviously kissing them is past a boundary. Probably maybe they would be open to it. and I just don't know that or vice versa. But presumably, it's past a boundary to just kiss them without asking or to get consent for that. But once you've discussed that you would like to kiss, and then you start kissing, my statement would be something more like your boundary was, I don't want to be kissed without consent. And that boundary hasn't
2: necessarily changed for me. It's just that I have the consent gotten consent to the point about the areas versus the fences. I have found that people are more successful in their communication when they talk about the land not the fence, by being able to say, I had a reaction, what I felt was something I did not want, here's my actual need, is that something you're willing to try to meet, then the conversation becomes about needs, instead of about trying to constantly find the intersections of these boundaries that are confusing in the first place. Like I find that grammar actually gets in the way with how we talk about boundaries.
1: And we focus on what we can do for ourselves and for other people and not what we can't do. So I do like that. Focusing on the land and not the fence.
2: Yes, the boundaries communicate two things. What you are uncomfortable with and what you're comfortable with. What you perceive as safe and what you perceive as dangerous. And by changing the conversation to being about those two things, about the sides of the boundary instead of the boundary itself, you end up understanding the land a lot more Yeah. to where you can coexist. Now, the emotional reaction that you had about that boundary being crossed That's still real. That's still, you got to still do your work and understand what that is. That may be unpacked through journaling, talking to a friend, whatever. But that is likely to decrease in intensity if you're having a conversation with the person who crossed your boundary about the land itself. Mm -hmm. And I have a definition of consent that I think works well with this idea of boundaries. And it is consent is the harmonious approval of a change to yourself By an external force.
1: I like the harmonious part.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And in terms of boundaries, you give someone permission to cross or renegotiate your boundaries, wants or needs. So they become a player on your land. You are giving them access to opportunities to speak, to offer suggestions, to offer observations about your reactivity. The harmonious part is good because it can't be coerced approval. Anytime somebody crosses a boundary, it's a change. I am no longer going to be the same. It might be a small change. It might even be a change I want. But technically, someone crossing my boundary, even in a positive way, ideally still has consent built in. Mm -hmm.
0: To me, it sounds like you're using boundary to describe crossing a line. Like when someone says you cross a line, man, because like they're upset, you know, that kind of emotional response. That's the, the way that you're using boundary as I hear it. So basically, if I have a negative emotional response to something that you've done, then that's a boundary.
2: I would even argue that if you have a positive emotional response it's still going to demonstrate where the structure of your ideas and wants and needs are. Between what and what? So if someone meets your need, they have come to your land in a positive way and made it all the way to the house and you still like it. That's a nice moment.
0: Well, it is a nice moment, but I don't see... Where the boundary comes in. As you said before earlier, that boundary is a liminal point. It's a point between one thing and another. Yes. So there's a very long process or a long experience of feeling positive or good about certain experiences that I'm engaged in. And at some point, there's a liminal moment, but the moment where I feel good
2: doesn't seem like it's, I mean,
0: it isn't even usually contained in a single moment, if that makes sense. It's not only like a momentary experience.
2: Okay, so you're pointing out the difference between if I cross a boundary and get sad, angry, afraid, that is that liminal, that is the the transition point between don't wants to needs or whatever. I have a strong reaction. Mm -hmm. But if it's a positive thing, it's because I'm already in the land doing good stuff.
0: If you think about the lands as you laid them out, if you're in my wants area, Mm -hmm. that makes me happy. I want people to do things that I want done. But also, if you're in my needs area, that makes me happy. And I'm not really clear how there would be an obvious liminal moment between my wants happy and my needs happy.
2: Oh. So so it's a intensity factor a lot of times. The first time someone meets your need, it feels different than the 15th. For a lot of people, it's a surprise. For a lot of people, it's unexpected that it actually happened. This person made it all the way here and now I have something. Now I have a connection or a style of relationship that's working for me.
1: Or maybe even a creation of a need at that point where you realize you do need that.
2: This is part of that... Contextual piece, I think you just hit on a good point, Mandy. Sometimes, by the inclusion of another person into that space, it's again, it's no longer the same space anymore. It's now shared space. And if that shared space has a collective need, that didn't exist for either one of them but now exists for both of them Mm -hmm. then there then there's creation that's an emergent need because of something different or realization not
0: necessarily an emergent Mm -hmm. it could be either right it could either be that they now found something that they need in this context or that they just didn't know that they needed yes well i don't think of needs as being automatically pleasant however okay i need to get the same sleep every night or i start going really crazy and i know all people have a problem with that but i have an actual disorder that gets much much worse if i don't go to bed and wake up at the same time. I despise going to bed and waking up at the same time. I despise going to bed on time, actually. But it's a very important need. A huge amount of my life focuses on it. A lot of people work to support me to do that so that I can continue to function as a human being instead of be miserable all the time. But there's no joy in it. I just like intensely getting into bed at night instead of staying up and working on things. Whereas wants are always a positive experience for me. So someone moving from my wants to my needs doesn't necessarily, to my mind, increase the intensity of my happiness in the way that I perceive it that way.
2: And maybe I mean positive in the sense of it can be meaningful, even if it's not feel good. Just like eating kale smoothies is not always people's choice, but it does have a outcome or even sometimes an experience that has positivity into it.
1: That's where my mind went was to eating your vegetables. Yeah. <laughs> Sure. It's like, we, we don't like to, but we have to. So
2: When I think of happiness
0: generally, I often am confronted, like in my master's work and generally in philosophical discussions, I'm often confronted with people misunderstanding happiness for joy, mm-hmm. where they'll be like, well, that's fleeting. You're going to be riding high one minute, but then you'll be sad the next minute. And there's no point in chasing it because you can't maintain it. And my goal is happiness, not joy. It's sort of a net positive emotional content over the time period that you're looking at. And ideally over the time period of your entire life.
2: So how did you define joy again? I was like, is that short term?
0: Right. As opposed to something like joy or pleasure, the traditional utilitarian was interested in pleasure, not happiness. And now more modern utilitarians are more interested in happiness, generally speaking, where pleasure is that immediate positive feeling. So I feel really good. The ice cream tastes great.
1: And that joy is pleasure. You're using those.
0: Yeah, I'm using those right now interchangeably. Okay. But I'm thinking of joy as being a burst sort of element that okay. generally people don't think of joy as being everlasting unless they're talking about like a rel- religious experience or an afterlife setting you know or because i was joyful or something i'm using joy instead of pleasure because pleasure has a sense of not necessarily but it's often used with a connotation of a sort of a physical motivator yeah. pleasure like i had sex or pleasure like i ate really good ice cream or a positive sensation whereas i wanted to use joy as pleasure but including intellectual pleasures so like you say em- emotional when you're talking with someone and they and they've read your favorite book and now you don't have to get them to read it and you can immediately start talking about your favorite book yeah. And you automatically now have 50 hours of shared context as if you had spent all that time together. Also, the way that that makes you think about the way that they want to spend their time, that it's very similar to the way that you have enjoyed spending your time in the past is a joyful moment for me, but I wouldn't necessarily... I mean, I would also call that pleasurable, but I could see people not thinking that of that as pleasure in the same sense. So that's all I was thinking is there is... So needs, most of the time, in my sense, or what I would aim people at with needs if I was trying to write, how would you list your needs, would be the things things that one requires both for general functioning and for the relationship functioning, but not necessarily the things that make you happy. Now, granted, some of your needs make you happy because presumably you have a minimum need for happiness. And you might even just have a need for happiness. Like, I need to have a minimum amount of happiness, or I need to have a minimum amount of my wants met or something. Whereas I tend to think of wants as being things that I do because they are more directly linked to happiness in some way, but not necessarily needs. And again, part of that is to, I'm trying to figure out, I guess, not the most valuable because I can imagine you could have multiple paradigms to discuss different valuable elements from different lenses. But I'm looking for the way to find the most distinction in wants, needs, and, well, and then there's a question of, if, I mean, given what you said, I also have a separate question about whether or not we should even talk about boundaries very often or if you would recommend when people are doing relationship agreements so they just sub out boundaries for don't-wants. Although that's a really weird one for me too because I have a really long list of don't-wants. I don't want a lot of things. Like, I don't want most things. I don't want the preponderance of things. And I could write things that I don't want for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And, hours, and no one wants to read that. No one wants to read my list of don't-wants because it's terrible. It's a much bigger list. But theoretically, there's technically a boundary between all of my don't-wants. Right. And so I could in theory list all of those as boundaries under this definition of boundaries, but I'm not sure how helpful that is in a relationship context.
2: Well, and I wouldn't do that because then you're defining yourself from the outside in as opposed to the other direction. And when you are able to define yourself from the house going outward, you're going to not have to focus on everything you don't want that's pessimism gone awry so when I should have written this down you you went three different directions and i i lost it i did
0: it's hard to keep up with them sometimes the one that's <laughs> on right now is that most relationship contract books will say write your needs wants and boundaries down mm-hmm. and it just doesn't sound like it's possible to write your boundaries down under the definition that you supplied i don't know how i would possibly begin to do that
2: and i'm not entirely sure that you can Now, if you're able to say, I know that I have a strong emotional reaction, especially in a way that I do not like when these things happen, that would be a good way to start that process with the awareness that you can't know all your boundaries ahead of time. Of course. Especially since all this is also contextual and depending on what you're talking about. I even kind of think about how in some ways you've got a different map for even different aspects of you. So me, the professional, has a different boundaries land map than me the relationship person me the student me the son
1: yeah yeah i completely agree with that
2: and so you talked about the convolutedness of the 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 metaphor of the theory you can try to draw all of them on one map and say this is my super map or you can kind of pull out which map you need in which circumstance
0: and that was why we were trying to separate different types of relationships and even individual people into their own relationship map that you would have a relationship map for a specific person because Mm -hmm. in the end, every relationship is so unique, you're going to have to write a map for that relationship. Even if you have two partners, they don't have the same type of relationship, and that's fine. But it was more that it would help you get closer faster. So like if you know that in the past, in all of your romantic relationships, you need the person to contact you at least once a day or something like that, then chances are really good that even though you might not need that in the future, it's at least a good place to start start thinking about that's probably a need if I'm getting
2: into a new romantic relationship. And something that you did really well when you talked about the punctu- punctuality issue in the other episode was mm-hmm. the recognition that what you thought your need was, mm-hmm. was only the surface. Yeah. And I have found that using this metaphor for talking about insecurities or different kinds of people, some people think they need a ton of space and think they want even more space and so what they don't want is actually so far away that they're kind of narcissistically claiming all of the world and basically saying this is all mine. Whereas other people basically have said everything is scary. I have very, very few needs, but I need them so badly and everything's in the don't wants. But that boundary is incredibly hard and no one's getting through except for this one person that I'm going to put all my energy and effort and expectations on. And They better meet that. Otherwise, they're <laughs> dead to me and yeah. so is everybody else.
1: The want section's very, very thin. The needs there, want section's very thin. And then the don't want is huge, yeah.
2: It's huge, brooding terribleness of mm-hmm. unknown and terror. Yeah. So I don't know if that made it more, maybe that made it worse.
0: I think the conclusion that I had come to after our other conversation already was just, you can't muddy the water on this. The water on this is black. Like, it's, <laughs> you're not getting any muddier. Sorry. So many. Than it already is, which is fine because as we've said before, there are many situations where being more complex and understanding that it's complex and not trying to get clarity and instead treating each scenario as an individual experience that you have to work through can be the Mm -hmm. right call.
2: Yes, every instance is unique, but also it's still a human experience. And so there Mm -hmm. are certain universals even about unique instances or situations. And so it's kind of a both and. For me,
0: the thing is, of course, that boundaries, needs, and wants are not objective facts they're theories that we use to help us understand the world mm-hmm. which is just like philosophy works Though well, not all philosophy but continental philosophy is the same sort of thing so existentialism is in construct a theory and that theory is constantly being changed and refined we're changing the way we use the words to adapt to more experience that says this is a better way to use this model it's easier to get the results that you want with this model change but it can also be different in different circumstances so like for example the model that daniel is is using sounds like a really amazing model if you have someone like daniel in your life to walk you through the complexity and make a ground map and help you see where that sort of work is which is why we so often recommend poly psychologists and psychiatrists because it's such an amazing resource
2: yeah we would do this over several several sessions if that was useful and it, honestly some people don't think like this and so we use other methods to help them get what they need out of therapy or coaching.
0: It's a useful fiction is what it is. It's mm-hmm. a way of thinking about a paradigm in order to make it clearer when you're having discussions with partners. And in fact, it's almost like a shared or secret language that's something that the person learns about you and them. So everybody's needs, boundaries, and wants are so unique that when you start having these conversations, the conversations are so unique that in a sense, it's about it's what, I mean, what getting to know someone is. Yeah. This is just a paradigm for getting to know someone and seeing if the two of you are actually compatible or you're just seeing what you want to see. One of the most common psychological human features that I find fascinating is that the less data we have about something the more appealing it seems. My favorite version of this is I'll see somebody that's like a speck on the horizon on a hill and my brain will go, oh I think that's a cute girl and by the time I get right up on them it's like a 90 year old dude with a cane and I'm like, oh that was not exciting to me. And the reason your brain does this is because most of the time investigation costs you nothing.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: So if it was then maybe that would have been a good thing while you're on your walk you might have been able to stop and talk to someone that was exciting to you so you might as well walk that direction instead of a different direction because it's worth the investigation for you and again i don't actually walk that direction because i don't want that person to be scared of taking walks because random guys will show up on them but i get excited in my brain because i still have a primate brain that goes something i'm excited about but this is always true like if you've ever watched an anime or a comic everyone looks super attractive because there's no definition Mm -hmm. it's like a chin line and one eye line and so you're like i think like when i'm watching most animation i have to wait for someone in the show to tell me if someone's attractive or not because i just otherwise can't tell because there's so little data that i'm like they, they look hot i think Everyone in the show looks attractive, probably. Mm -hmm. And so these sorts of tools are important because everybody looks like they're going to be compatible with you. You just assume that your way of viewing the world makes sense, is fair, is kind, because those are the things we're all trying to be. And so until you have a way to see what the other person is thinking, you will just assume that they're thinking like you. And for good or for ill, because it's also often for ill in the punctuality example, which was just that I had a partner who couldn't show up on time and that was upsetting to me because I liked punctuality. But then I eventually realized that what I actually liked was knowing what was going to happen. And if you agreed to show up, that would make me mad. So I just stopped setting up times with them to do things and instead just assumed I couldn't count on them to show up on things on time. When I didn't have that conversation, I would never have been late to something that I agreed to meet someone at, at that time in my life unless I basically didn't care about them or thought they were unimportant or I was mad at them or I was otherwise just just did not care about them at all. And so that was how I read those experiences. I was like, you didn't show up, you don't care about me. Mm-hmm. You show up to other things on time, you don't show up for me on time, so I'm just not important to you. I'm not relevant to you, I don't matter to you, why are we even dating? But it turns out that they had an entirely different world conception, wherein showing up on time was not linked to caring about someone or how much they cared about somebody, and in fact might have actually been adversely linked to how much they cared about you, because the more they cared about you, the more safe they felt with you, and they only remembered to show up on things on time based on panic. Yeah. So if they weren't panicking at the thought of disappointing you, they weren't showing up on time. That's what these tools are for. In the end is that this tool is to help you actually see what's in that person's personality as it relates to what's in your personality as far as how you exist and move through the world and how compatible you are moving
2: through the world together. Yes, and with the boundary awareness, we would often point to something like mindfulness. That allows us to name our emotions, understand what they're trying to communicate, regulate, show gratitude, and let them go. That's taking the data of boundaries and making it useful to your own life. Being able to say, hey, you just crossed a boundary. I know this. Let me explain what happened and let's decide whether or not that boundary needs to move or stay the same. Or maybe you just need to you know, step on back. <laughs> the other part of the emotional regulation piece is I think what you're you're getting at is being able to say, this is what I need. And I might think of you as an extension of me, but you are also your own person. And that is so hard for most people, especially when you fuse your houses without ever talking about any of this. Because then you've just got boundaries all over the place. They haven't been negotiated. They haven't been changed. They haven't been incorporated with each other. And you just have these emotional flare-ups constantly. Well, and this isn't even
0: super surprising. One of the things that we think of as being fairly unique to humans, although there are a couple other animals that possess this, is what's called a theory of mind. And a theory of mind just means you understand that other people have different thoughts than you. But the most rudimentary version of theory of mind is to project your own thoughts onto the other person, to think the question, what would I do in that situation? Or if I had done that, what would that mean from my perspective? And it's what we do when we first learn theory of mind before we realize that other people have not only different perspectives because it's the most rudimentary thing. Like it's easiest to see that you're on the other side of the room. Like I get that you're not in the room with me. You have a different background than me. So you're seeing different objects that I'm seeing. And so I can start to understand that you have access to different information and different puzzle pieces than I have. And that's the easiest thing to project. The more advanced theory of mine is to understand that even the value structure, the capabilities, the way their brain prioritizes or thinks about information, how they brainstorm, these things are all completely different for them. And so you can't do something like simply say, what would I have done other than as a really vague proxy as a starting point for that conversation? Yes, in the
2: simple baby way, we call this egocentrism. And it's why peekaboo and other things are fun with kids because they only see the world for the way they see it. Whereas as adults, we hopefully develop empathy. And when you're able to not just put yourself in someone else's shoes, but in a way that isn't built on your own values and schema, but on theirs. And learning someone else's infrastructure helps you do a better job of experiencing it a little closer to how they do. And when you can do that without your own defensiveness, without your own assumptions, then connection on those moments becomes more possible. Okay,
0: so what I'm seeing is that if you think of the discourse about boundaries and needs and wants as being a toolkit to help you understand your compatibility and to give you potentially some warning or guidance in how to be more compatible or how to live more empathetically with your partners or more kindly with your partners, then the real answer to what should the deaf definition of them be is whatever you both decide upon that the most important part is that you're operating from a shared definition that you say this is what we mean when we say this and this is what we mean when we say this and that daniel is presenting one toolkit that is based in variability and the liminal spaces as the barriers and the house metaphor and the land and then what we did in the last episode was a different paradigm toolkit that you could use that was aimed at more linguistic simplicity in a sense and daniel you were saying that in your scheme like grammar can get in the way and in the scheme that i was proposing it's honestly probably quite grammar heavy and part of the idea for that from my perspective is to make it simpler to implement yourself that it's something that i feel like is easier for people to do themselves and also easier for people to do and then relate to multiple partners again in a one-on-one sort of environment which is not to say that either one of them is superior i think what you would have to do as a listener is say which one of these speaks to me which one of these am i more comfortable with
2: using and then, how to fail safely. How do we make sure that we can come back to the table when there seems to be a difference? Because of course there inevitably will be.
0: Right. Even if you guys sit down and hammer out a two paragraph definition of what you mean by each thing you're talking about, you still actually won't be using the same words. And we talked about that all the time. And the issue of linguistics, is just you're never actually using exactly the same words, even if you think you've done everything you can to to be the same words. It's always a work in progress to get closer on that page, not not
2: be on the same page, though.
0: Never exact.
2: Is there a particular way you'd like to wrap up? Because that kind of was. You tied it together nicely.
0: The only thing I wanted to still do, if you're up for it, is I thought it would be nice to have each of us do a short version summary of what we think the, the kit that we're suggesting mm. is most usable for. You know how at the end of each show, we kind of do a summary. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking one of us would do a summary. like I can go first if you want. And then you could do a summary of like how you see your approach being different or what different things it highlights. Because I, I definitely see that your approach gets at vagaries that would be hard to find in my approach. And that could be very helpful for fine tuning issues that are yes. seeming intractable.
2: Yes, it's definitely fine tuning setup, or it's definitely set up to be as fine as you need. Yeah.
0: Whereas the what I was trying to put together was the starting point. Mm-hmm. It was if you've never done this at all, and you're going to sit down with your partner, here are the big steps to get you the most important big stuff as fast as I can get it. And that's actually a really good way to use that is if you go and use the other episode, and I'm going to summarize it real here quick in a second, what I was saying to get it on the page, and then use what Daniel's been laying out to fine tune it as you go forward. For me, that's what I would want to do. So the definitions we were using were based on interpersonal relationships not existing as relational being. They were sort of exclusively for use in relationship contracts is what we were trying to lay out. How you would set down, what are my boundaries? What are my needs? What are my wants when coming to the table with a partner? And as Daniel said in this episode, you don't want to label literally everything you don't want because that's ridiculous. So here I want to pull the definition from the definitional cloud for boundaries that really means the serious boundaries that the other person needs to know to not walk over a landmine. So it's not necessarily that these are instant deal breakers for you but you should definitely all the ones that you know are going to send you right into fight or flight mode so that the people that you're working with know where those lines are and then needs are the things in my approach that you think that you actually need to just survive or things that you need for the relationship to survive so I would write down in my needs for instance that I do need consistent sleep and even though sometimes I can go outside of that need a little bit I do and there's reasons to do so I I need you to res- be respectful, especially if I ask for your help getting consistent sleep. Like if you're like, I'm just going to stay up late and bang on these drums, then that's going to be something where I'm going to be like, you're you're trying to hurt me at this point And I don't, I don't understand. And then wants are the list of things that would bring me joy, so to speak. They're the things that I would like a partner to do or like someone to do that would make me happy, but they're not necessarily things that if I didn't get them, it would cause the relationship to eventually die. I wouldn't have to leave the relationship. Obviously, I'm sure I have a need for some amount of wants per partner, because if you don't get any wants from your partners, and I'm not 100% sure that that's worth staying in that relationship. And maybe that's just me. But I could imagine being in a relationship that helps my needs and doesn't cross my boundaries and enjoying it, even if it was in a sort of smaller way than I normally want to engage a relationship.
1: So Michael, do you liken your needs to happiness and your wants to joy?
0: There are contexts where I might do that. And probably my Personal needs are happiness things. They're more necessary but not sufficient. My needs are literally necessary. If I don't get them met, I can't be happy, even though I might be able to feel joy. So I could have someone that met a lot of my wants but doesn't meet my needs, which is always the hardest people to not keep in your life. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> because they're making you feel really good, but they actually not great long term. Are not doing the minimum necessary to keep you yeah. functional. So no, I wouldn't I wouldn't draw that as synonymous. I was just saying that, that needs much more often for me fall into things. Things that I've worked out through long exploration about myself that are necessary to my functioning, as opposed to simply things that I desire, enjoy, think that I want right now, or I'm excited about. I'm very rarely excited about needs. I'm not like, yay, my needs are getting met. I get to eat today. I just don't want them to be the same. I don't think they're the same, even though they might often be similar. And their definitely needs tend to be much more long-term, like the way that I think about happiness, the way that I approach happiness. Right. But it's not the same in the system that I'm. I'm suggesting people use. I want to focus on people naming and listing their own boundaries, needs, and wants, and not being held accountable in the sense that if you eventually go, oh, that isn't really a need, that shouldn't be an accusation. Right. It should be a discovery. Oh, that's great. We found out you don't need that. And so we can have a more flexible scenario going forward that will work better for both of us, as opposed to you said that was a need, but you lied. You don't really need that. That's not what those are. You're not making proclamations. You're making best guesses about your own experience with yourself so far in the lifelong project of getting to know yourself and yourself is constantly changing, which makes that even harder as a project.
1: But I think that's a good point to make is that your needs contribute to happiness,
0: given that you're right. Because you can have toxic, you can believe that you have a need that's actually undermining your happiness. You can have maladaptive perceptions of your needs. right? As we talked about, I definitely know people who think they need things that makes it impossible for them to have healthy relationships. That doesn't mean that you don't respect their needs as stated. If you try to date them, you should definitely take them at their word and say, Oh, you need that? Okay, well, then I don't know that I want to get into that relationship.
1: But I mean, when identifying your own needs, I think that's a great bar
0: yeah, that's how you should be testing for your needs. Do they aim at your
2: happiness? Do they help support your happiness? Do they seem to take away from your happiness?
1: Sorry, go ahead, Daniel. I was just, sometimes it takes me a minute to understand.
2: The one thing I would add to this whole conversation is psychologically, a long time ago, a guy named Maslow came up with a hierarchy of needs. And so the most fundamental thing that he pointed out with these physiological needs, so air, water, sleep sex, safety, that type of thing. Well, safety is the next layer. And so are you safe? And then do you have connections? Do you belong somewhere? Do you have love? And then it goes all the way up to self-actualization or maybe even transcendent ideas. And again, that's a framework. It may not be literally true for everybody, but that can be sometimes a nice way to say, okay, what are the needs that if they disappear, I will have the greatest impact. I will not last very long without that. And even thinking about that relationally, I think that is a good way of discovering what your most vital needs are. What would take away your sense of safety, your sense of functionality, your sense of who you are? If those things disappear, ooh, you're not going to be a good partner to anyone else either. Yeah. And as far as the wants go, yes, I agree that the enjoyment, the pleasure center of that is important, that convenience, that ease is certainly what you're going to be describing in that area. And for a lot of people, this is also levels. So, I have something that I really 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 want. It's not quite a need, but it's strong and I at least want to let you know. You know, similar to the boundaries thing about the the really hard boundaries sometimes you have to just speak efficiently here are the things that are the biggest that are the most significant that are the ones that are going to blow up the worst let's start with that avoid those try to aim for my happy spots my pleasure spots whatever you're aiming for and we'll fill in all the little details as we go i'll let you know if i have an emotional reaction you let me know if you have an emotional reaction And as long as we can come to each other we'll figure out our schemas together we'll figure out that compatibility it doesn't have to be personal every single time that there's an emotional reaction
0: that's the microcosm where you actually stay together of the relationship fit is not a comment on your quality Mm -hmm. so if we've run into a small moment where our relationship doesn't fit i'm not saying you're wrong i'm not saying i'm right i'm just saying this is what my need or want and this is what you need or want and they're different i don't want and we have to find a way to make those work together
1: Mm -hmm you can't meld the houses.
2: Assuming you even want to. Yeah. Well, I
0: think I did what I wanted to do. Does anyone else want to add anything or is there anything that anyone else wanted to do before we wrap?
1: No, I I want to thank Daniel for your time and and thank you for explaining your pieces to me because I think it helped me a lot.
2: I have found that visuals, whiteboards, metaphors just are so versatile for so many people. And so the more of those I can have, the more effective and versatile I can be as a therapist, as a coach, as a communicator of hard things. And I'm not done with this theory. I'm definitely not on the continental track. So I'm going to be running with this one for a long time and... If anyone has suggestions or observations on how to improve it, that's very useful. I do think that, Michael, your point about what are you using this for Mm -hmm. is going to be value. Is is this for self-exploration or is this to make sure we don't piss each other off? Yeah, You might take a different tactic depending on the purpose.
1: I know when I was visualizing it, there was livestock in between the fences, just so you know.
2: So so good, so good.
0: Potential imaginations. Me so hard. sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. I find it fascinating. Like anything that I don't understand, I just—it's just really interesting to even think of the idea.
2: Of... The idea that I came on and pretty much only talked about something you can't visualize. Yeah. I'm so sorry.
1: He is a map, yeah.
2: Here's my final (laughs) messy drawing.
1: I was looking for a pen when you first started because I wanted to draw it too and I don't have a pen on my desk anywhere.
2: So, thank you. This is fun. I like this. Michael, we don't have to put this in the thing. A lot of psychological people use happiness differently, but you did a good job of defining it that I don't think anybody's going to get confused. I definitely came
0: to it philosophy not psychology Mm -hmm. but what is the psychological definition for happiness
2: you mentioned the religious perspective happiness is that momentary whatever and joy is the thing that lasts eternal in many regards happiness is the positive pleasurable state of joy joy is the emotion itself kind of like anxiety and fear are technically different fear is the moment of spark whereas anxiety is the state of being in fear and so it's. not incompatible with what you said so I didn't
0: I'm pretty happy with that as a definition but I think that fits well with my thought which is that happy is a continued state of joy Mm -hmm. so if the goal is to reach a constant state of happiness that still sounds more accurate than where the joy is the Mm -hmm. the moment of eruption so to speak